All right, Jesse, last week's demon-inspired killer really got us into spooky season mood. What's the story this time around? When a lovely single mother is murdered in her home, the police look to her love life to find the killer. What follows is a mind-boggling story of lust, love, jealousy, murder, attempted murder, cocaine deals gone awry, and multiple flights from justice. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about illicit trysts, crazy twists, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover this show. Thank you so much for your reviews this week. And remember, we are still, and I think forever, <laughs> doing stickers. I hope forever. Nathaniel's going to kill me for saying forever. But yes, we're still doing stickers. So if you have given us a lovely review, please, please, please write to us so we can say thank you with a sticker. If you are interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are so honored this week to welcome and shout out a new set of amazing patrons. Lisa O and Kim S. Beth E., who's a romance writer, and Jamie H. Melissa and Alexa L. Sarah B. and Ursula L. Shauna P. and Sarah T. And last but certainly not least, Erica B. and Kelly V. Also, guys, I want to recognize that it is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So a shout out to all of our survivors out there. I know there's a lot of listeners who have experienced domestic violence. And I want you to know that we hear you. We see you. We support you. We love you guys so much. And to honor this month, we will be donating every week to a different organization that helps raise awareness and helps the survivors of domestic violence. For this week, the organization is Futures Without Violence. So we will be highlighting them on our social media. We'll be making a big donation and we will send you in the right direction if you would also like to join us this month in highlighting and donating to these organizations. Very excited about helping out in any way, shape or form. And also if anyone listening has suggestions, please feel free to reach out too. Yeah, absolutely. And if you work within an organization that helps provide support for victims of domestic violence and survivors, please let us know because we would love to work with an organization that's close to your heart. All right. I don't even know what to tell you about this episode today, guys. I was at a wedding over the weekend. Big shout out to Jameson and Abby. Uh, <laughs> Nathaniel's best friend was married. He was in the wedding. And I had so much fun at this wedding. And I told everyone about love murder to the point where the groom's father actually got up during the, the wedding and he pulled me over to his table while the food was being delivered. And he's like, hey, I just told him that crazy story you told me last night. Can you tell us another one? <laughs> it was really, really cute. 
And so the story that I, I told everyone at the rehearsal dinner was Audrey Marie Hilly. I love that you did like a Love Murder Live. I did a Love Murder Live at a wedding. So the rehearsal dinner, I did Audrey Marie Hilly, which is the most insane story, you guys. If you're listening in reverse, you have some treats waiting for you with that story. And then I actually, on the night of the wedding, I told this one because it is almost as crazy. I got the same feeling when I was researching this one that I did with some of our crazier cases because I remember reading the book and it was like my jaw just kept dropping and I kept saying like, are you kidding me? No way. I cried. I laughed. I mean, it was a journey. So I'm so excited to share this case with you today. Let's fucking do it, Jesse. It was a little after 6 p.m. on Tuesday, October 4th, 1983, when detectives Morris McGowan and his partner Mike Corley responded to an injured person report in the Dallas, Texas suburb of Richardson. Though fall was apparent in the bare branches of the trees and the browning lawns, the Texas heat still lingered, making the early evening feel more like a lazy summer one. When the detectives pulled up, they realized that what they were dealing with was far more than simply an injured person. Ambulances and a fire truck cast the neighborhood in strobing technicolor while neighbors stood on their lawns and stared. The paramedics rushed a woman on a gurney out of a modest house. A patrol officer filled them in. A woman in her early 30s named Roseanne Galunas, who lived in the house, had been shot. Her prognosis looked grim. McGowan was able to take a look at the woman's face as they loaded the gurney into the ambulance and began to sprint to save her life. Clearly once beautiful, Roseanne's face was now badly swollen and her black hair was covered in blood. As the ambulance roared away, the detective's attention was captured by a small boy who ran crying and screaming from the house into the arms of a tall, gangly man who immediately scooped him up. The officer said, that's the lady's son. He was in the house with her. Four-year-old Peter Galunas had apparently been in the home at the time of the attack. It was his phone call to his father saying that mommy was sick that had alerted Dr. Peter Galunas to call 911 before he himself made his way to his soon-to-be ex-wife's house. Inside the home, the ordinary, children's toys, an ironing board, and a framed photo of the smiling mother and son were hauntingly juxtaposed against the horror that had occurred in the bedroom. Paramedics had discovered Roseanne, nude, tied to bedposts, spread eagle, face down, and with evidence that she had been both strangled and then shot in the back of the head twice with a pillow to muffle the sound. What? Yeah. And her four-year-old was in the home the entire time. Oh, my God. Blood covered the bed and the pillows, and there was a small pool of vomit apparent on the floor next to the bed. The scene was overwhelmingly one of human terror, death, and terrible violence. It wouldn't take the investigators long to cast their suspicion on the good doctor who seemed both unconcerned about Roseanne's survival and still bristling at the betrayal that had ended their marriage. That betrayal involved Roseanne's boyfriend, a man named Larry Ayler, who was also getting a divorce from his longtime wife, Joy. Two promising suspects had immediately presented themselves. Could the person behind the brutal assault be one of the two men who claimed to have loved Roseanne, either her cuckolded husband and father of her child, or perhaps her passionate new lover? Or could it have been someone else entirely? Unfortunately, after great lengths by the surgical team at the hospital, 33-year-old single mother and skilled ICU nurse in her own right 
Roseanne Galunas would pass away. Then the detectives McGowan and Corley, as well as Detective Ken McKenzie, would be investigating a homicide. The case would become labyrinthian. There would be yet another murder attempt. Blackmail. Blood betraying blood. Ominous dead fish warnings placed in mailboxes. Cocaine deals gone bad. Multiple flights from justice spanning four countries and two continents. And charges eventually brought up on 11 different individuals by the time the case was resolved. Holy shit. Yeah, this is no ordinary love murder, guys. This one gets real deep real fast. And at the heart of it all, one wily, manipulative criminal who managed to slip away from responsibility at every turn until they were finally caught. So buckle up, buttercups. Today we're taking a roller coaster ride to hell. Okay, so today's sources are a truly excellent true crime book. I'm telling y'all, you should read it. It's called Open Secrets by Carlton Stowers. Anne Rule did the blurb. She wrote, one of the most remarkable true crime books I've ever read, said Anne Rule, the queen of true crime. I mean, that's the highest accolade. (laughs) It really is. You can't get any higher there. And it is true. I am telling you guys, my jaw was dropping. I was having feelings. It reads like a novel. It's truly incredible. So definitely get after that. And I also watch Snap season 21, episode 24. because It's always fun to have like a little visual along with it. And the detectives that worked on the case are all on the Snapped. It's always so fun to see if your visual from reading matches at all with what someone who's creating an actual visual does. Agreed. And I have to say, Carlton Stowers did such a good job that everyone looked exactly like I thought they were going to. Wow. So let's get started by talking about Dr. and Mrs. Galunas, Peter and Roseanne. So Peter and Roseanne had met in the ICU of a suburban Boston hospital, Andy. Ooh. Yes, so Roseanne's from Framingham, Massachusetts. The young doctor was working nights when he was put on a shift with the pretty and vibrant Italian-American nurse named Roseanne Agostinelli. Roseanne was outgoing, fun-loving, vivacious, and Peter felt himself immediately charmed. He would later say that it was pretty close to love at first sight. When she handed him a note that said simply, call me sometime, at the end of his shift, he was already a goner. (laughs) A passionate relationship developed, and Peter not only thought that Roseanne was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, but also the most interesting. According to Carlton Stowers' excellent book, Open Secrets, No woman he had ever met so fascinated him. At the hospital, she was the picture of professionalism, calm and businesslike in the most demanding crisis. Peter had never seen a nurse more thoughtful and caring with patients, her quick smile and sparkling dark eyes almost magically chipping the hard edges away from the life and death tensions that constantly shrouded the ICU. Privately, she was sexual, adventuresome, and exciting, as comfortable on the nude beaches off Cape Cod as she was in one of Boston's finest restaurants. So she was a profesh when med freaking bed. <laughs> so he was completely smitten with her, as anyone would be. I mean, I think it's very attractive to watch somebody excel at what they do, especially when that's caring for people. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, it seems like she's confident and successful and who wouldn't be attracted to that? Very, very much so. She definitely had a confident energy and was really, really smart as well. So 
Things weren't totally smooth sailing, however. Peter found it a little bit strange in the months that the couple had been dating that Roseanne had never, ever once invited him over to her house. And she preferred to have their dates outside of the area where they seemed to both live and work. Okay. So that was a little strange. I think that that's definitely a love murder red flag when you've been dating somebody for a long time and you've never seen where they live. Absolutely. So turns out when he brought up the fact that he wanted to get married to her, that she was already married. Uh, what? Not what I was <laughs> expecting. <laughs> I thought you were going to say she like lived with her ma. <laughs> no, she was already married. However, she was already legally separated and working towards a divorce. So this isn't all bad news, but it's just one of those situations which I think a lot of people find themselves in when you are financially stuck living with somebody while you're going through a divorce. So this ended up working out just fine because Peter himself had recently gone through a divorce. He was married to his college sweetheart from Boston College, and she had married her high school sweetheart. So this didn't bother him that badly because it seems like they had both married the first person they'd ever fallen in love with, and they were moving on from that relationship. It kind of makes them like more aligned, weirdly. Exactly. So this was not a problem. The couple made plans to wed as soon as Roseanne was legally able, and they did so in June of 1972. They had recently moved across the country to Dallas, Texas, where Peter had been appointed to a faculty position at Southwestern Medical School. Competent and professional Roseanne had absolutely no problem getting a great job as well. She was actually hired to work in the burn unit of the Parkland Medical Center, which is the same hospital that JFK was taken to on the day of his assassination. Whoa. Peter was a great doctor, but also a hardworking and talented businessman. He and a partner bought a struggling medical equipment company, and they turned it into a gold mine. Within two years, the business was grossing $4 million annually. Whoa. So this is the late 70s, and I'm not entirely sure that Carlton Stowers did not maybe adjust for inflation when the book was published in the mid-90s. But if he didn't, then that's more like $16 million in yeah, today's money. Say. So Peter's parents had been Bavarian-Lithuanian immigrants who had fled Nazi-occupied Germany in the 1940s. And his childhood had not been easy. It was plagued by a lot of poverty and his father struggled with substance abuse issues. So I think that this type of financial success and security was extremely important to him. And the only thing that came close to the joy of building a secure financial situation for his family was when his son was born. So we're going to call little Peter, little Peter or Peter Jr., even though he was technically Peter Galunas III. He was born on April 18th, 1979. Unfortunately for Roseanne, while Peter was accomplishing his dream of amassing the success, his hundred plus hour work weeks and rigorous travel schedule that had helped him build that success only seemed to isolate her and grow some resentment in the relationship. So she was away from everyone. She had been raised in Framingham. She'd always stayed in the Boston area. Her whole family was there. And I think that she was a little homesick. And she did have, for a while, a very rewarding job working in the burn unit. But when little Peter was born five weeks premature and with significant health problems 
Dr. Peter was not around. In fact, he was on a business trip when Peter was born. And despite his best efforts, really, he did try. He was not able to make it home until after the baby was born. So this is not necessarily his fault, of course. I mean, the baby was five weeks early. These are the type of psychic injuries that are hard for a couple to come back from when she's saying you're always working, you're never around, and then he misses the birth of their only child. Yeah, absolutely. So Peter felt terribly guilty at missing the birth of what would be their only son, and he did promise to cut back on work, but he did not follow through on that promise. He was working more than ever, and when Roseanne complained about it, his answer was to tell her to quit her job. He's like, we have a ton of money. You don't need to be stressed out about this. I think you're stressed because you're trying to do too much. You just quit and take care of Peter, and everything's going to be great. But that just made her more isolated. I was going to say, not every woman wants that. <laughs> yeah, and you know, there's there's a ton of women who do. I know that I'm in this online moms group, and There's so many women that are so excited when they're able to financially stay home with their children. There's other women who absolutely need the lifeline of their job. And that's also being a good mom, doing what is best for your family, doing what's best for your mental health. That is being a really good mom, too. I personally know that I expected to be a stay home mom with Alden and starting this podcast gave me a whole new richness to my life. Yep. That I would have otherwise missed. So however you mom, we love you and we're here for you. (laughs) But I think Roseanne probably would have benefited from staying at work in her situation. And so she was really lonely. She's having a hard time and her husband's never around. So she was kind of teetering on the brink of potentially divorcing Peter taking her son back to Boston, going back to work and having her family help her with her son. When Dr. Peter, her husband said, I really want to make you happy. I want to work this out. And to do so, let's build our dream house. We've been talking about it forever. They had been looking, I guess, for new houses for a year or two years, and they hadn't found a house that they loved. So he's like, let's do it. Let's screw it. Let's get a custom builder. Let's get an architect and let's build the the house of your dreams. And maybe that will change things in our marriage and your happiness. Because I do think a lot of guys throw some like material things at problems occasionally when they don't know how to emotionally handle them. 100%. (laughs) Yes. So she was still kind of borderline, but it was into this kind of complicated situation that she ended up meeting home builder Larry Ayler. Stop. I was literally going to say she's going to end up like hooking up with one of the contractors. (laughs) Yes. And his interior decorator wife, Joy. So after the very first meeting where Roseanne was kind of quiet, apparently Joy and Larry got in the car and drove away and Joy was like, oh, wow, the doctor's wife is very, very pretty and very, very sad. Oh, Larry Ayler did not need to be told that Roseanne was a looker. He had certainly noticed. Larry was a bit of a ladies man and marriage had not slowed down his pursuit of other women. Shortly after the construction began on the new house, Larry took Roseanne out ostensibly to discuss fixtures, but in 
reality, the two confided that they were each unhappy in their respective marriages. Not much longer after that, a torrid affair began. So let's rewind just a wee bit and talk about Larry and Joy in happier times. Larry looks a little bit like Danny McBride. Stop. <laughs> Swear to God. He really does. And he has that East swag. and down. Oh, yeah. Danny he's, McBride. Yeah, he's kind of always the same, isn't he? He's like eastbound and down and in the Righteous Gemstones. It's kind of the same character. Curly mullet. Yes. Like could be a race car driver. 100% exactly that. And he has, I think the attraction for all these women was that he had that same kind of confidence that Danny McBride's characters usually have. Yeah. So Joy's really pretty. She kind of looks like Mary Steenbergen, who's Ted Danson's wife. She is like the mom in Step Brothers, Four Christmases. Yes, she's got that kind of fine-boned, high-cheekboned attractiveness and, of course, the 80s hair going on. So Joy and Larry had been high school sweethearts. Joy was vivacious and pretty, and she was a junior on the honor roll when she met Larry, who was a very popular and sought-after senior. I heard a little bit of a back and forth about who exactly pursued who, but suffice to say that after they met at a quintessential Texas Friday night football game in 1966, that they were a couple pretty much immediately. And not just a couple, but they were the couple. Classmates thought that they were absolutely perfect together and everyone predicted that the relationship would end in marriage, which it did in 1968 when Larry was about to turn 20 and Joy had just turned 19. So Joy's father was a wealthy real estate developer who helped Larry get his start in the construction business. Shortly after the birth of Joy and Larry's son Chris in 1970, Larry worked up the ladder, apprenticing under architects, carpenters, roofers, and plumbers until Joy's father, Henry Davis, was satisfied that Larry was hardworking enough and prepared to start his own custom home building company, which he did in 1978. I mean, if that isn't like a complete handoff, that's amazing. He got to work with all of these different contacts from his father-in-law, and then he apparently just like blessed him into the business. That's amazing. He did. And Henry Davis, Joy's father, did put some money behind the organization. Obviously, he had a ton of connections that he helped him out with. And unsurprisingly, the company completely flourished with all of this background. And Larry was talented at what he did. And he was a hard worker. And Joy also was the bookkeeper and the interior decorator on all the projects. So this is kind of like this HGTV before HGTV power couple. The couple built beautiful homes in the five hundred dollars to $600,000 range, which is closer to million plus houses in today's money. So financial success followed and the couple celebrated their hard work and good fortune by building a nice new home for themselves. They purchased a large farm-like ranch. They had horses and alpacas. Joy got herself a nice little Porsche and Larry bought himself a Jaguar, a motorcycle, a boat, and a nice fatty Rolex. No jet ski? So they said it was a, a ski boat. I was like, that was what Carlton Stowers wrote. And he got himself a ski boat. And I'm like, is that... A jet ski? Is it a fast boat? What's a ski boat? So yeah, he got himself a Rolex and not to be undone, Joy purchased something else. Well, technically two something else's for herself. She got a boob job. <laughs> <laughs> not where you thought I was going with that one. 
No. She would later tell a friend, if your husband is always drooling over other women's breasts, you start thinking how nice it would be if you would do the same at home. Mm, That's not how it works, though. Yeah, that's bleak. So as many a lady out there, I know you're listening. I've done it myself. If you've ever tried to change your own looks to satisfy a partner with a roving eye, you know that it does not work, that it's not about you. It's about him. Firsthand have experienced this, guys, just so you know. Yeah, it's definitely about him. And Joy's new assets did nothing to quell Larry's bad behavior. After reports that Larry had taken clients out on a tour of Mexican brothels, Henry Davis began to despise his son-in-law. Yeah, there were rumors about his infidelities, and then that was proven that he did that. And that's just a huge slap in the face for Henry, who had set him up in this business. Yeah. And married his daughter. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It gets worse, too. Much later, they didn't know this at the time, but they would find out later, that Elizabeth, Joy's little sister, the youngest sister of three, Joy was the middle sister, she revealed later on that Larry had, she said, seduced her, but she was a teenager, so he preyed upon her, obviously. Exactly, yeah. Yes. And she called it an affair, but it is abuse. And that went on for years. I think it started when she was only 15 years old and... Wow, dirtbag level. Yeah, Larry was in his early 20s, I believe. Yeah, so this is not great. And no one knew about the Elizabeth thing at this point, I think, except for their oldest sister. And tensions were very, very high, obviously, at Davis family gatherings at this point because Henry despised Larry. And obviously there was a whole different thing going on with the youngest sister that nobody even knew about at this point. But most people assumed that they were going to stay together. Yeah, no, I would be having no gatherings. No gatherings. But people people assumed that they were going to stay together because of their families and also because Even if Henry was mad at Larry, he was still benefiting from being part of his family. So everyone thought for sure that Larry was going to hang in there, mostly for the money and the connections. To his friend's surprise, as soon as Larry met Roseanne, he was ready to give up on his marriage. He didn't care about getting full custody of his kid or all of the money and connections that he was going to give up. He was ready to give up everything for Roseanne. All of his friends said that he was completely head over heels in love with her. And he said it was like for the first time because he had met Joy so young that he said he didn't realize like what love could be. And he was insane about Roseanne. Yeah, but that's like different from love because he's forfeiting everything in his life. You're not even going to fight for custody of your kids. I mean, I think he wanted shared custody, but I was saying he wanted to be a part of his kid's life for sure. But when you make a choice like that, you're choosing to not be a part of their every single daily life. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's it. I think that he still, he desperately wanted custody or partial custody, at least of his kid, Chris, but he was willing to risk these things for Roseanne. And it seemed like, according to Roseanne's family, that she felt very similarly. I mean, she was never going to give up anything to do with her son. Obviously, she wanted full custody. But other than that, she was ready to stay in Dallas for Larry. She had found an emotional touch point in him. They really bonded very quickly. Meanwhile, 
Peter began suspecting Roseanne of the affair, and he was driven absolutely crazy by this. He had kind of befriended Larry throughout this process of building the home, and he even took him out for drinks and was like, hey, I think Roseanne's cheating on me, to Larry. And Larry was like, yeah, I don't think that's not really her style. She's not that type of woman, and I gotta go. So he had tried to bring it up to Larry. Larry said, no, I don't think that's going on. Peter resorted to fishing Roseanne's underwear out of their hamper, scraping samples of this discharge that was in the panties, and then putting the scraping under a microscope to examine what it was. Wait, what? Hold on. What? Yeah. So (laughs) go back. Go back to okay. the beginning of that. Because okay. so, he took her underwear. Wait, wait, wait. After in flagrante or? So he had no reason other than his own gut sense that she was cheating. I'm sure there was some other stuff. But he took her underwear to the lab, scraped off some discharge that was apparent in her panties, and then put it under a microscope where he had one of his medical students look at it as well. And he said, can you confirm to me that this is sperm? And the medical student said, Yeah, that's sperm. And that was how he confirmed that Roseanne was cheating on him. That is psychotic. Yes. So when confronted, Roseanne told Peter that she wasn't cheating. She denied it straight up, even though she was. But she did want out of the marriage. So she was honest about that. She said, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm not cheating, but I really am unhappy. And you're clearly unhappy if you're scraping my underwear at a lab. You're scraping discharge off of my underwear and looking at it in a microscope, (laughs) bro. (laughs) Once again, from our sponsors, BetterHelp. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is also, we, we talk about it too, where even if she wasn't cheating, let's say, this is a sign that you're not, in a healthy marriage. So she said, look, I need some space. I'm going to rent at another house. Maybe there's a chance of reconciliation, but it doesn't look good. But I need some space from you. And he did agree. He did agree at that point to give her space. And he became basically obsessed with winning her back and getting his family back together. It was very much one of those you don't know what you got till it's gone situations where he had been so focused on his career for so long. And then all of a sudden now he's focused back on her, but it's too late for her. She was over it. So of course, better help. He went to therapy and he began to work on himself and figure out how he could be a really good husband to her. Psych. Instead, he did none of those things and he began spying on Roseanne. Unfortunately, he did not better help it up and figure out maybe how the relationship had gotten to that point. Instead, he hired a private investigator to follow her, and he also tapped his own phone line just in case she used the phone while she was back at the house taking care of her son. And it was that wiretap that provided a recording of a pretty damning conversation between Larry and Roseanne, where they both talked about what they didn't like about their spouses and Roseanne told Larry that she was in love with him on this recording. Yeah. So he, of course, confronted her about that as well. And she did continue to deny the affair. But two days after he confronted her, she served Peter with divorce papers. And Roseanne used the same divorce attorney that her lover Larry had also employed to get the ball rolling on his divorce. 
Guys. It's a two for one there for a divorce attorney, which is two really smart. <laughs> yeah, you should, when you're ending your marriage, you should ask, is there anyone else? Do they also need representation? 100%, but that, <laughs> that's on the client to not take that offer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At this point, Peter accepted it. He did fully accept that she was leaving him. He was willing to let it go. However, the custody situation did drive him a little nuts as well because she wanted full custody. He wanted joint custody. So this is where there ended up being a little bit of a a court case and custody battle in this situation. And while he was trying to build a case against her in order to get, I don't know if he wanted full custody or just joint, but whatever it was, getting more time with his son is what he was looking for. He actually went to Joy and said, hey, I've got this recording of our spouses if you want to use it in your divorce as well. So according to Open Secrets, in late August, he invited Joy over to his house and played the tape recording. And she listened intently to the conversation and critical remarks about herself as well. And so I guess that Dr. Peter was watching her and trying to figure out if she was going to have a reaction about this. And he was surprised at how controlled she seemed. She didn't seem angry or hurt at the things that he was saying. And when it was finally turned off, he volunteered to make her a copy so she could use it in her divorce. And she said, you know, I'm going to think about it. And the following day, she called him and said that she just wasn't interested in that type of stuff. She was like, I want this divorce to be over quickly. I don't want to get into this mudslinging And I don't really need to hear that, which I understand. I think it's mature of her, honestly. So at that point, Peter was like, oh, okay, I got to give this up too. They agreed to the terms of the custody arrangement, which I think was Roseanne having more or less fullish custody and him having visitation. So the divorce was supposed to be finalized on October 10th, 1983. And while their marriage did end, it was only in her murder on October 4th, six days before their divorce was supposed to be finalized. Huh. Yeah, pretty suspect. So we're back to the days following Roseanne's murder, and the police had already eliminated burglary as a motive because there was no forced entry and nothing was stolen. The scene did seem to point to sexual assault as she had been found nude and tied up, So they did explore the possibility of a rapist or some sort of sexually motivated serial killer or killing. But the autopsy revealed that Roseanne's genitals did not actually display any trauma and that no semen was discovered in her body or on her body. So it's possible that the sexual assault might have been staged. Pretty soon, Dr. Peter became suspect number one. Well, Larry was very close behind. Roseanne's family flew in from Boston, and they were pretty convinced that Peter was behind the murder. They felt like he had mistreated her in their relationship. I didn't hear anything about any sort of physical violence or even really emotional violence, but it was more like a a cruel freezing out, like a coldness. And... They really actually liked Larry. They had heard a lot about him in the months prior to Roseanne's murder about how he had kind of brought her back to life and how he was so supportive and how he listened to her. So when they landed, Larry actually picked them up at the airport. Crazy. Yeah. So her family was pretty bonded to Larry and 
pretty sure that her husband or soon-to-be ex-husband was the murderer. The detectives were also suspicious that Peter lawyered up immediately. So directly after discovering Roseanne had been shot, he pretty much said, if you want to talk to me, you have to talk to my lawyer. So far in the story has been very good at throwing money at things. So this makes sense. Yes. And he probably he's a smart guy. He probably knows he's the number one suspect. So I don't think it's that suspicious that he lawyered up immediately. I think it's probably pretty wise at this point. But they looked at it as like, well, that's interesting that he lawyered up right away. And they said that in his first interview, she was still alive at that point. She had been rushed to the hospital and they had performed surgery and unfortunately it was unsuccessful. However, when they were initially questioning him, she was still like clinging on to life and he asked nothing about her condition, if she was going to pull through. So he seemed very unconcerned with her survival And the only thing that seemed to elicit any sort of emotional response was his anger when he was talking about the affair. Okay, well, I was going to say, was he at least emotional about if the son was okay? Yes. He actually, it was pretty devastating all around this poor kid in this situation because they were concerned enough about Peter potentially being the killer that I think for a couple days they put him into like a foster care situation I appreciate that they did not want to relinquish him into the care of somebody that may have murdered his mother. Yeah. However, this is very traumatizing. And Peter was very, very instrumental in getting his son back and making sure that he was emotionally okay. And a big part of actually fighting for custody had been about the fact that little Peter had been demonstrating some worrying social behaviors. And it was clear that the child was in emotional distress just from the divorce. And the problems in their relationship. So now this is a whole nother level. They did also gently interview little Peter. And he thankfully had not seen anything. However, he woke up and he had been taking a nap when she was murdered. And he woke up and he wanted to watch a cartoon VHS tape. And he was trying to get it to work. And when he couldn't get it to work, he went into his mother's room and found her like that. But he's only four years old and he didn't understand what was going on, of course. So he, I think he tried to bring her milk to make her feel better. He thought she was sick. Oh my God. And he was able to call his father and tell his father that something was wrong and mommy was sick and he couldn't watch his cartoon. So when they did interview him, they asked him if he had heard or seen anything. He said that he heard two loud bangs, but he didn't see anyone. And he said the cookie monster did it. So he was obviously conflating fantasy and reality. So this was not a reliable, they're not going to get anything from this kid. No, obviously. Yeah. Also leave him alone. Leave him alone. Yeah. The one thing that also made them suspect Peter, there's a couple things was that He did say that his dad was at the house later, even though he had showed up at some point. So we don't know if he was saying you were there, daddy, or you were there when you came in later. And I guess that he had also said something to a neighbor, neighbor's daughter, like, you didn't see me today, right? So that was a weird thing to say. Everyone was a little suspicious, of course, of Dr. Peter. He was alibied. He had been at work all day. 
They believed that the murder had happened sometime around four o'clock ish. In the evening? In the afternoon. And he had taken a nap. Or he said he took a nap at his desk from four to four forty five. So even though it would have been a tight turnaround, the police did believe that it was possible that he could have slipped out, murdered Roseanne and returned to work. It was possible. Yeah. If he took an app at the exact time that the murder may have happened. Yeah. So he claimed that when he returned home from work around 5 p.m., I think he was living with his mother or his mother had moved in to help him. And he said that she could alibi him, obviously coming home, and that Roseanne was supposed to drop little Peter off. And she didn't. So he kept calling her, but she wasn't answering. And then he got the phone call from little Peter. And he had his mother call 911. And he rushed to the house. And by the time he got there, there were already emergency responders. So that's his story. It's absolutely horrible that everyone is pointing the blame on him if he didn't do it. But I think that it is important for them to be evaluating all of this. I agree with you completely. I think that it is it's something that you want the investigators who are looking into the death of your loved one to do, even if that means that you're on the receiving end of it. I think it's important that they have to make sure it's not the most statistically likely person to do it first. And then after thoroughly ruling him out, they can move on. And speaking of that, Larry Ayler had no alibi whatsoever. So he said that he had been supposed to see Roseanne that afternoon or evening. And when he didn't hear from her, he went on a long, solitary bike ride. No one could corroborate that. Long, solitary bike ride. Yes. And both of the investigators, so they basically went, one took the husband, one took the boyfriend. They went into two separate rooms to interview them at the same time. Literally, both detectives came out and said, I got the guy. And they were like, wait, no, no, my guy did it. And he's like, no, no. My guy did it. They both were 100% convinced that Larry did it, the guy who interviewed Larry, and Peter did it, the guy who interviewed Peter, because also Larry was very forceful in trying to blame Peter. He said he did it. He finally did it. That guy has been a maniac. He's been all over her. I'm not surprised. So he was very like the lady doth protest too much, trying to throw blame Peter's way. So to cover their bases, and because she also had a motive to want Roseanne killed, Joy Ayler was interviewed by the police as well. And she was professional, cooperative, and she really actually impressed the investigators with her beauty and poise. Joy was thoroughly alibied out and didn't appear to have anything to do with her rival's murder. The investigators actually just left saying, I don't know what's wrong with Larry. Why did he cheat on this woman? She's amazing. She just really impressed people. She seems like she's been composed in every situation so far. Every situation, completely composed. So taking a closer look at the top suspects, the detectives were further perplexed when the pieces weren't falling into place. There was nothing that was really matching up to Peter doing it because everyone said that Roseanne was a spitfire. She was fierce. She was a fighter. She was very self-assured. Everyone said that she would have fought her attacker. And they were confused about the fact that it didn't seem like based on her injuries that she had. And the police also knew, though, that she was a really, really dedicated and good mother. And it makes perfect sense that she would go along with whatever the person said and try to be quiet 
to not alert them to the presence of her son in the home or not to scare her child. And that's why they ended up ruling out Peter, because if it had been a man that she knew loved that child, she would have screamed bloody murder to get the kid to run out and realize what was going on. And she wouldn't have been scared that he was also going to hurt the child. And everyone said that Dr. Peter really, really loved his son. So they think that it probably was not likely Peter because she would have fought him back versus maybe somebody else who she'd be concerned didn't care about the welfare of her child as much. Now, Larry, you could say the same thing. Maybe she would believe that he wouldn't do that to her as well. But also there was just no motive for Larry to kill her. No one is benefiting financially from this. She didn't have a life insurance policy. He was getting nothing from this. He was ending his marriage to be with her. It just rationally, it doesn't make sense. And now we know that love murder is not rational. So of course, there's the possibility that it just didn't make sense, but it wasn't lining up. There was no like clicking into place any of these guys with the murder. No, but who's the one person who would be mad about the situation if Larry was with her? Joy. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know what they did? They actually did. And again, guys, I know polygraphs are junk science, but they're tools in order to get a read on people's anxiety as far as if they're lying or not. Or So we, we know that these are not <laughs> a polygraph doesn't mean anything necessarily. They did polygraph Joy, Larry and Peter, and they all passed with flying colors saying they had nothing to do with the murder. So you're saying that a polygraph is as reliant as scraping discharge off of underwear and looking at it (laughs) under a microscope, or it's not? I think it's less reliable than the (laughs) discharge under a microscope. At this point, they have to say, I have no idea who did this. And shockingly, Joy and Larry got back together after this whole thing. In the weeks following the murder, they reconciled and Larry told the police that their relationship was better than ever. Better than ever after your like affair partner was brutally murdered. Like, come on, bro. Yeah, we're happier than ever. It's like we're honeymooning again. Oh my God. So years passed and they really did try everything. They traced down every lead. There was a $25,000 reward. In fact, he even, this Detective McGowan, was put in touch with Ann Rule. And Anne Rule put him in touch with the detective on the Green River killing case because they were trying to figure out whether this could be the work of a serial killer. Oh, wow. Okay. They were trying everything. They were talking to the FBI. They were going down every avenue. And it just did not seem like it was because there was no other similar murders anywhere in this region or area there was no pattern. So at that point, they thought, well, then I guess it had to be a one-off, but they had no idea who actually did it. So scary. It's really scary. So there wasn't any real answers as time marched on. And the Ehlers marriage, not surprisingly, did not weather well. Joy's little sister, Elizabeth, eventually confessed to Joy about the abuse and the affair if you can call it that, that had gone on for several years, which, of course, really blew up the whole family. And for her part, Joy had also had her own affair partner. She had taken up with a man named Jody Packer, who was a plumbing contractor and the ex-husband of a Dallas County court judge. 
So things had gotten so bad in their marriage that Joy got pregnant in 1985 and had an abortion. She told a friend that she could not bear the thought of having another child with Larry. So this was not a good situation. In the summer of 1986, almost three years after Roseanne's murder, the marriage was nearly over when Larry Ayler was shot at and almost killed. What? So here's the rundown of how this happened. Joy told Larry that she and her mom wanted to go horseback riding at their like farm ranch area. So she asked him if he would go ahead of them and saddle up the horses for them. He agreed. He ended up taking along a good friend of his named Don Kennedy, and they decided that they were going to do a little riding themselves. And then while they were waiting for the women to show up, they parked it on a porch and drank some bourbon together and shot the shit. But as the sun started going down, they realized, oh, the women never showed up. So they must have changed their minds. This is pre-cell phone era. So you guess you just go, OK, I guess this isn't happening. So they ended up putting the horses back in the barn and then they got into a pickup truck and started heading down the road. About a mile down the road, there was another pickup truck on the side of the road, like pulled over. And they didn't really think much about it. Apparently there was like a little bridge and then it was pulled over just past the bridge. So they get on the bridge and all of a sudden this guy starts shooting at them. And the bullets go through the windshield as they're approaching. So Larry just puts the pedal to the metal and drives as fast as he can to get past it because they're stuck on a bridge. There's nothing you can do. You can only go forward. So it completely smashes the front windshield out. Glass is flying everywhere. Bullets are flying everywhere. And then as they drive by, he's able to see that there's just a man standing in the road shooting at them in the rearview mirror. And he actually shot out the rear window as well. They just gun it until they get to safety. And then they pulled over, I think, at a gas station and called 911 to report it. And then they went to the hospital because his friend Don Kennedy was shot. He had been shot in the arm. But they were both very, very lucky. Larry's injuries were only related to the glass. So he had some cuts from the glass. And Don was shot, but he survived. It was just a gunshot wound to the arm. Merely a flesh wound. Merely a flesh wound. So that happened. And Larry ended up calling the police and saying, I think it was a hit. I think it was the doctor. I think that he killed Roseanne and now he's finishing the job out of revenge. He's trying to kill me too now, three years later. So random. The police did not really think that that was the case, but they had no idea who was trying to kill Larry and who did kill Roseanne. And he also had another theory that maybe it was his father-in-law because of everything he had put Joy through. Yeah. So those are the two theories about who was trying to kill Larry. Now, when the officers actually investigated, they believed it had actually been either drug dealers or poachers who had been doing something nefarious in the area and were trying to get the men to leave. Yeah, it's a stretch. It's a stretch. So that's what they think at this point. So obviously this marriage is doomed. And the nail in the coffin was when Larry came home one day to find Joy in bed with Jody Packer. Yeah, I'd say. So the Ailers finally called it a day and they both moved on. Jody moved in with Joy and Larry remarried a female friend named Jan. 
even Dr. Peter moved on. He was eventually set up on a blind date by a mom friend at Little Peter's school, and he remarried as well. It seemed like all of the main players, all of the main suspects, had put Roseanne's death completely behind them. But of course, Roseanne's family is like, what the fuck? Like, figure this out. Why are you not investigating this? Let's keep a move on now. And I have to say, the the detectives had not let it go. They were doing everything they could. And they were haunted by the fact that that child had been in the home and would never forget his face as he ran out of the house in terror. So they were very, very, very dedicated to getting this solved as well. And they caught their first break four and a half years after Roseanne's murder when Larry Ayler began receiving some strange voicemail messages, or I think answering machine as it was back in the day, from a woman who claimed that she knew who killed Roseanne. So Larry's getting these messages, not Peter. Okay. And this woman is saying that it was a man named Bill Garland who killed her, and she's worried that Bill is going to kill again. So he goes to Detective McGowan and he says, yep, I'm getting these weird messages on my answering machine. I did talk to the woman once. She's supposed to call me back. And some weird things are going on at Joy's house as well. My son Chris has told me that she's getting strange phone calls. She's getting strange letters. They even found a dead fish in their mailbox. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Okay, Andy, I don't know about you, but for me... One of the biggest day-to-day mental health challenges is keeping my brain in problem-solving mode when faced with challenges. Oh, absolutely. It can be so much easier to focus on problems than solutions. But when you figure out how to find your own solutions, there's really no better feeling. 100%. Talking with a therapist is one of the best ways to become a better problem solver. And that's why we're so excited to be sponsored by BetterHelp whose therapists can help make it easier for you to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. I think one of the biggest misperceptions around therapy is that it's only for people who are dealing with some big, huge issue. Yep, because in reality, therapy can be such a positive part of so many different types of people's lives, whether it's dealing with anxiety or depression, working on some sort of emotional healing, or just having someone to offload normal, everyday stress with. One of the things that makes BetterHelp such a good choice for people is that it makes what can seem like an intimidating process so convenient and easy. When you sign up, you fill out a brief survey, and then you get matched with a therapist. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. And you can switch therapists at any time. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash LoveMurder today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash lovemurder. Bomba's mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you're giving to someone in need. Bombas designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes you cannot wait to put on every day. Okay, Andy, you know I absolutely love Bombas. Guys, I'm telling you the honest truth. I begged our podcast network (laughs) to get them as a sponsor. I discovered them when I first had Alden, and they have become a total staple in our house. 
Oh, I know because I've seen them all over your house, Jesse. <laughs> I also know that my dad really loves them too. I do really love how there's a pair of Bombas socks for everything you do. They come in all different types of options, like comfy performance styles made with sweat wicking yarns, which means your feet stay super cool while the rest of you works up a sweat. And did you know that they make shirts as well? Bombas t-shirts are made with thoughtful design features like invisible seams, soft fabrics, and the perfect weight so they hang just right. Yep. And underwear. Did you know? I actually did not know. I'm going to run uh -huh. out and get myself some underwear. <laughs> Bombas underwear is so breathable and it fits so well. It feels like you're wearing nothing at all in the best way possible. I also love that they're a company with a mission. Socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters. That's why Bombas donates one for every item that you buy. So far, Bombas customers like you have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing. Go to bombas.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder at checkout. Bombas.com slash lovemurder code lovemurder. Do it. They're the bomb bus. Yes. <laughs> Most of you have probably heard us sing the praises of Pros, the world's most personalized hair care. And for those that haven't, we want to tell you about the incredible results we're seeing since using our customized Pros products. Andy, you know that there's no one-size-fits-all solution to hair care, and that's what makes Pros so unique. I somehow have combination skin and hair. I have greasy roots at the same time. I have dry, sad ends. And I have never been able to find anything that works for my greasy roots and my sad, dry ends until now. You know I personally deal with a lot of tangles with my natural curls and really wanted to figure out a way to manage them. As you know, Jesse, I am such a fan of zero maintenance hair. Just wash and go. And so I was very excited to see how these products worked for my hair. That's true. You were like annoyingly like so great at just taking a shower and walking out the door. No makeup, no hair product. You kill me. Pros knows there's more to you than just your hair type. Pros has given over 1 million consultations with their in-depth hair quiz, which is how we got started. And I love that so much. Pros asked me really unexpected things like what was my zip code so they could see the environmental effects on my hair, which obviously we have quite a bit living in LA, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I answered 500 questions on my OkCupid okay profile so I could meet Nathaniel. So I was really down with this type of <laughs> quiz to find my perfect hair products, and it works. Pros analyzes over 85 personal factors and determines a unique blend of ingredients to treat your exact concerns. Pros also has a review and refine feature, and it lets me tweak my formulas for any reason, like change of address, hair color, or my diet. I recently switched dyes and colors, and it was easy to make a few changes just because of that. As a carbon neutral certified B Corp, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All of their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon neutral. If you're not 100% positive Pros is the best hair care you've ever had, they will take the products back, no questions asked. Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation, and I'm telling you guys, it's fun, and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash lovemurder. That's P-R-O 
se.com slash lovemurder for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. There's a fish in the mailbox. There's lots of stuff happening that's weird. And Detective McGowan said, you need to give this woman my pager number and she needs to get in contact with me so I can find out what's going on and what she knows. So Larry does that. And this mystery woman ends up reaching out to Detective McGowan. And when he hears from her, it's already really late at night. It's like 11 o'clock at night when his pager goes off. So he calls her and he gets her to meet up with him in an all-night diner just past midnight. Okay. So this is very uh, clandestine. And you can kind of see it like in a movie that it's dark and he's in this red vinyl booth and he's looking out the window and this Mercedes pulls up and this pretty good looking glamorous blonde rolls out. There's no one in the place. She comes in, she slides right up to the booth and she says, do you know who I am? And he says, I'm guessing you're Carol Garland because I think he had surmised that she was Bill Garland's wife. Okay. And that's why she was turning him in. And she said, Yes, but do you know who else I am? And he has no idea. She pauses and then she says, I'm Joy Ayler's sister. And she's the person you're after. Joy is the one who planned the murder of the doctor's wife. What sister is this, Elizabeth? Or this the other is one? the oldest one, Carol. <gasps> so this is the eldest sister. Oh my God. She says, There's more though. Joy also planned the attempted murder of Larry Ayler. So she says, this is how I got involved. (laughs) This is like how I met your mother. This is how I got involved in a murder plot. She says that she always hated Larry. Carol had tried to warn Joy about the situation with Elizabeth, the youngest sister, and Joy had not listened to her. There was a longstanding rivalry between the sisters for many reasons. It's just typical sibling rivalry stuff. Sisters. (laughs) Exactly. It is. It's like, uh, yeah, that song gone very wrong. So they had never gone along. I guess Joy was always the family favorite. But they were aligned in their hatred of Larry. And so when Joyce said she wanted to kill Larry, Carol was like, "Okay, cool, you should. And so she said, "Okay, you have to drop off this money for me. This guy thinks my name is Mary. I've never seen him. I've never met him. But I need you to go to, I believe, a gas station to hand off this money so that this guy is going to arrange the hit of Larry. Not shady at all. No. So she did it. She went for it. She went to go bring, I think, something like five grand. May have been more at that point. To this man. And when the guy, Bill Garland, saw Carol, he fell instantly in love with her. And a relationship started between the hitman and Joy's sister, Carol. Now, the facts of this relationship are very fuzzy. Carol said that she was never really into Bill, but he intimidated and threatened her into having a relationship and marrying him. That's what she said. She ended up marrying him? Yes, she married Bill. She married him. What is in the water here? (laughs) So he's like 6'5", like pushing 300 pounds. He's a big guy. So she says that she was 
threatened into marrying this guy. He said that she actually pursued him. On the Snapped episode, they made it sound like it was just some sort of immediate chemistry type of thing. So Joy had not told Carol anything about previously setting up the hit on Roseanne. It had actually been Bill, her husband now, who had told her that he had helped kill Roseanne or arrange the killing of Roseanne. Wow. Carol believed that Bill did it himself, but she also said that she thought he had help because he said, we did it. We killed the doctor's wife. So she know it's really messy. And how this all came out was that regardless of how these two got together, they definitely were scheming very well together because they decided that they were going to get some more money out of Joy. They were going to do that by blackmailing her. So they started writing her letters as Roxanne Galunas. And I don't know if this was an intentional misspelling because her name was Roseanne with a Z and they were saying Roxanne. But the effects of these letters were, I need some money. And if I don't get this money, I'm going to come visit you. And so they were threatening her and her son by having knowledge of this murder if Joy didn't give them $25,000. So that's what they're doing. They're writing these threatening letters. So this is what Larry was describing. The weird letters, the phone calls. So she's saying we did this and it gets even messier because Joy freaks out about getting these letters. And she ended up calling Bill and asking him to kill Carl Noska. So this guy, Carl Noska, was the one who put her in touch with Bill when she said she wanted Roseanne killed. So she thinks that Carl, the only other person who knows about the murder, is the one blackmailing her. I mean, that's not completely off. Yeah. So she's like, there's only one person who knows about it. So Bill, I want you to kill Carl for me now. How much is that going to be? How did she find Carl in the first place? Like Carl had a huge crush on her. So Joy is very attractive. Carl was very much into Joy. And she said, can you kill this woman that I hate for me? And he said, no, but I know somebody who can. And that was Bill Garland. So he said, no, I checked out Carl. It's definitely not Carl. And so she goes, well, then who could it be? No one else knows. And he goes, well, I didn't actually kill Roseanne. I passed it along to this other guy and that guy told his girlfriend and I think it's the girlfriend. And so she said, well, let's kill the girlfriend. And at that point, Bill's like, how many people you want me to kill, lady? You want me to kill everybody in the Dallas area? And she genuinely, genuinely told him, I actually have five people I want killed because she was also thinking about Larry at this point. So will I get a discount if I set up five hits? No, she did not. She did it for the discount. He was like, sure, probably, yes. So at first he was playing hard to get. He's like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to do this again. The thing with Larry had gone really badly, obviously. And so she starts writing letters and showing them to him. She's like, look, this letter says you're in trouble too. They're going to come after you. And he knows that she was writing her own letters and showing them to him because he wrote the letters for the blackmail to begin with. So he knew he didn't include himself. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh yeah, my this God. is insane. And so he finally agrees to kill this imaginary woman girlfriend for $12,500. And she gives I mean, it to him. I mean, that's the best 
solution. The best solution, the letters stop. She feels better. She thinks somebody's been eliminated and he's $12,500 richer, not having had to murder anyone. So Carol is downloading this all to the detective and it's a wild story, obviously. But she said what has changed her mind about her relationship is that Bill is deeply abusive And she did also have a teenage daughter who thankfully was largely living with Henry and Francis. Those are Joy's and Carol's parents. So she wasn't as privy to the abuse, but she said that she wanted to leave Bill and Bill had threatened to kill her daughter if she divorced him. Yeah. Okay. So things are really bad. The police had already been called to their house before. So there's evidence that Bill was a piece of shit. We could probably have guessed that if he's potentially the killer or in the middle of this murder for hire. Yes. Yes. And she said, now I wanted to come forward for two reasons. Number one, I want him locked away forever and away from me so I can safely get a divorce and leave him. But number two, I also want that $25,000 reward I know y'all have for Roseanne's murder information. Girl, like, just come on. Don't implicate yourself. Just, like, ask for safety. And she was kind of pushing the issue about the reward money. So the authorities are a little skeptical of this story. So there's this longstanding historical resentment between the sisters. Carol's clearly in it for the money because she keeps bringing it up. And she does have a history of wild claims and strange behavior. There was a situation where she called 911 and said that her home was being burglarized and they showed up and it was completely on fire. And she was the only one there. And then she tried to submit an insurance report and they informed her that they were investigating her for arson and she dropped it and moved out of town. (laughs) So classic, classic. So Carol's a little suspect, but when she was talking to Detective McGowan, she did say something that made him believe her story. She said that they had fucked around with Joy's mind and one of the things they had done to spook her was put a dead fish in her mailbox, which he had already heard from Larry about that report. So he's like, I don't know. I think we've got something there. And he's like, Carol, if you want the money, then you're going to have to wear a wire and get your sister to admit to having set up the murder of Roseanne Gaylunas. Absolutely. They went full 007. They had an undercover officer with a briefcase with a camera in it. Like, so he set the briefcase like up at the counter and it was pointed towards the booth that they were supposed to be in. And she had this like envelope that if she like pressed the corner of the envelope, it would start recording. So they had this whole setup going on and they ended up meeting in the same all night diner that she had initially met with the detective. So Joy did kind of admit vaguely that she had set up the whole thing or that she was somehow involved. According to Open Secrets, the conversation went like this. First of all, Carol told Joy that Bill and she had married, (laughs) which shocked Joy. She had no idea. So that's news to her that the man who potentially killed her romantic rival and tried to kill her husband was now married to her sister. Uh, Yeah. And she said after that, and he told me everything, I know it all. And she said, how could you? And Joy said, well, what has he told you? And she said, everything. I just don't understand how you could have gotten involved in such a thing. And Joy said, believe me, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't. You just don't understand what he did to me. And with that, the conversation turned to Larry. Joy spoke of the hurt she had felt upon learning of his affair with her younger sister. 
And in response, Carol confided that he had years earlier also made advances toward her as well. Wow. Yeah. So then she brought it back to the actual murder. And she said, Bill says that you told him you had a partner, that you had to get some of the money from the doctor because they were trying to figure out who else might have been involved. And Joy said, that was a lie. I just told him that to buy some time. I needed time to get the money together. Was Bill the one who did it, Joy asked, because Joy didn't know who actually killed Roseanne. That was her impression, Carol replied, but she thinks that he had somebody else with him. For the next half hour, Carol dominated the conversation. She explained how concerned she was for her safety, and they just talked like sisters for the rest of it. So that's pretty much all they got for Joy, which is... Good that she's kind of made that one line about if I had to do it back again, I wouldn't do it. And we can tell she's involved, but it was not enough. So they get Bill Garland. They find him. They hunt him down and they're interviewing him. And it did take hours for them to drill down and get a real story out of Bill. And where they landed was, we know you're involved. Your wife and Joy are turning on you. They said everyone is going to testify against you. So we've got you. And we think also you're the straight up murderer. So you should tell us everything if you're still just the middleman. And he said, I did not kill that woman, but I did help arrange for her to be killed. And he finally spilled everything. So he says that he was hooked up with Mary, which is what he knew Joy as, through a friend, that's Carl. And he said that he would do the hit. So Joy gave him $5,000, of which he peeled off $2,000 and kept for himself. And then he actually passed the job to a guy named Brian. But he didn't know if Brian was actually the one who did it or if Brian also passed the job along to somebody else. But he did say it was Joy who asked him and that she was so happy with the results that a week after the murder... He received an additional $500 and a goddamn thank you note in the P.O. box he set up to receive the money. Oh, my God. Yeah. A thank you note. Were there kittens on the front? I imagine it's totally one of those precious moments. Thank you cards. Well, thank you all so much for murdering that woman so horribly. So he said, yeah, he got a thank you note. And then she did reach out to him again a couple years later because she wanted Larry dead. And this time he went back to Brian and Brian made some comment like the guy that he had gotten to kill Roseanne was killed by the police. So he didn't have a person anymore. But really, Brian just didn't want to be involved with this anymore. And so then he went to another guy named Joe Thomas. And Joe Thomas said, I know a couple brothers who might want to get the job done. Now you have to go to Joe Thomas because Bill Garland didn't know who these brothers were. Turns out they were a couple guys named Buster and Gary Matthews who got drunk and ended up firing at the truck with their 22s completely shit-faced and botched the hit, obviously. So they eventually arrested all of these people that were connected to the murder and attempted murder. And so they hunt down Brian and they say, did you do it? And he said, no, I took the $1,500 out of the remaining 3000 that I was given. And I passed it on to this insurance guy I know. He did it, he said, and he was crying. Brian was clearly feeling a lot of guilt about this. He's crying in the interview. So Brian said that the guy's name was Andy Hopper. So while the detectives start gunning for this new guy, 
who they still don't know is maybe the murderer. Or maybe he passed it along for $700. Nobody knows if this is the trigger man. So they start looking for that guy. But then they also finally decide to arrest the one who pulled all of the strings, Ms. Joy Ayler. So Joy was arrested for the murder for hire of Roseanne Gay Lunas and the attempted murder for hire of her husband, Larry. But this sweet-faced, manipulative lady just gets away with everything because she was released to her home on a hundred fifty grand bond. So with Joy on her way to the trial, the detectives now are focused on finding this new player, Andy Hopper. Andy is the perfect example of a once-promising youth taken down by his own predilections, addictions, and selfishness. I guess you could also probably make an argument that there was just some weird underlying darkness to him out of no reason. He had loving, attentive parents. His dad was an automotive repairman, and he had a very involved, caring mother. He was a good-looking guy. He was well-rounded, and he was voted in high school runner-up for senior class favorite and a finalist in the annual Most Handsome Boy competition. What? <laughs> That's so weird. I wonder if that's still a thing. You guys have to tell us if there's still a most handsome boy competition. He played on the golf team. He did drama club. And he was actually a favorite among his teachers who considered him a bright and promising student. His deeply religious parents were overjoyed when he enrolled at Southwestern Assemblies of God College in Waxahachie, Texas, to study to be a minister. There he was... Very, very popular. He earned a spot on the college's choral group, and he fell in love with a sweet, shy brunette named Becky Thompson. The young couple was married on April 19th, 1975, when Andy was 19 and Becky was only 18. They dropped out of school to move back to the Houston area so Andy could start making a living working on cars with his dad. And then he ended up working and managing auto body shops for a little while before transitioning into becoming an insurance appraiser. Life was pretty solid. It was stable. And he and Becky ended up buying a nice house. They had two beautiful little girls. But behind the white picket fence, Andy's demons loomed large. His first brush with the law occurred in March of 1976 when he exposed himself to the manager of an apartment complex near where he worked. Uh... Yeah, I think he was working at a car dealership at the time, and this woman said that her baby was in the other room. She was getting an apartment ready for a new tenant to move in, and she was vacuuming the floor with the door open, her baby in the next room, when he just showed up and pulled his penis out. And so she ended up screaming, running, grabbing the baby, pushing past him and getting to safety in the apartment complex's office. But then she was like, screw this. I'm not going to be afraid. And she (laughs) grabbed a gun from the office and went out and threatened him. And the police came eventually and arrested him. And he tried to play it off as she had no idea what she was talking about. It must have been another guy. I was just walking back from lunch when she accosted me with her gun. No one believed him. So his poor wife had to come bail him out from exposing himself to this woman. And that was just the beginning of their troubles. It sounded also like he was insanely controlling. He was abusive. He was also compulsively unfaithful to her. And the sickest part of it, was it seemed like most of his affair partners were either the partners of his friends or they were Becky's friends. 
So it wasn't enough just to cheat. It was a psychological thing where it was the most taboo person and that it was somehow a victory to get them to go over to the dark side. Yep. So he was a very, very bad man. And he also got himself into a lot of trouble because he decided he wanted more money than he could make being an insurance appraiser. And he ended up running into this man who had worked for his father at the auto body shop. And this guy now was really, really, really rich. And he wanted to know how he had done it. And he said he was moving big quantities of marijuana. So he was a big time drug dealer. And Andy asked him if he could get involved. So Andy starts dealing drugs for him and he ends up getting himself hooked on meth, angel dust, cocaine. I think meth was the big one for him. That's what he was actually really addicted to. But he was experimenting with everything. So this is obviously going nowhere good. And he was prone to taking whatever criminal jobs he could. He was stealing money. And they believed that he took that $1,500 and likely killed Roseanne for drug money. It's literally the slipperiest slope. It really is. And by the time that they were able to locate Becky, Detective Ken McKenzie realized that he had already arrested Andy before. Uh, Apparently, he had pickpocketed a guy's wallet and then called the guy up later on and said, hey, I found your wallet. Is there a reward? The guy said, well, you can have whatever cash is in the wallet. And and he said, well, it was empty, so you got to give me something. And the guy said, I don't have anything to give you. I've already gotten some new you know, ID and stuff, so I guess just trash it. And then Andy started threatening him, saying, I know your address. I have these pictures of your wife and kids that were in your wallet. I'm going to kill them if you don't give me money. Whoa. And the guy called the police, obviously. And when they arranged this meetup so that he could give him money, that's when he was arrested. So this is not his first rodeo at being threatening, scary, scummy at all in any capacity. So Andy was on the run, though. By the time they find Becky, she's like, I don't know where my husband is. He took off. So I don't know if he was tipped off by somebody, but he's gone. He's on the lam. And they finally get a call from a woman named Linda who claimed to be Andy's girlfriend. So this is his mistress, who is also the fiance of one of his best friends, because, of course. And she said she knew that the police were looking for Andy and that she said Andy made a plan to go to Mexico, but he wanted to see her one more time before he left. Not his wife, not his kids, his mistress. So they planned this whole thing where they bugged a hotel room and they had to get her to say, we're going to meet up in this hotel room. But then he wanted to get another room and it got very complicated. This was not smooth at all of her getting this information because they went to the first hotel room that didn't have the recording devices in it. And then by the time they moved over to the other hotel room, she said, well, he's already told me everything. So it's weird if I keep bringing it up. So they got almost nothing on the recording other than the couple having loud sex for hours on end. Oh my God. (laughs) Which is also really weird because she knew they were listening. Yeah. What they didn't catch on the recording as well was when she apparently feeling moved by guilt 
told Andy that the police were on to him and that they knew the make and model and license plate number of the motorcycle he was driving. So he needed to ditch it and get out of Dodge. They did not hear that either. They did not hear that. And so he got away. Yep. He was on the run for months. He went all over the United States. He did not make it to Mexico. And then after months, she got a call again. And he said, I've been on the run. I'm going to come back to, I think, the Houston or Dallas area. I'm not really sure which. But back to Texas, let's say. I'm coming back to Texas. I am actually going to Mexico this time. But I need to see you before I leave. But by now, Linda had moved on. She had a brand new boyfriend. She was over this. She was not interested in the murderer married guy anymore. So she actually did get the police involved again and let them know where he was. I think that how she did this was they uh, traced the call and they found out that he was at his cousin's house. So they go to the cousin's house, they arrest him and they've got him now. Yeah, he did not make it to uh, daiquiris in Mexico. I think it's going to be more like dickeries in prison, buddy. So he first tried to say that he also didn't kill Roseanne, that he had just passed the money along. And there was two different people that were named in this. Both of them were not the killer. And when pushed, he finally admitted to Detective McGowan that, and this is after being Mirandized, that he was the actual killer. So this is the rough part, y'all. This is the part where we talk about actually what happened. So Andy told a friend that he needed to crash at his North Dallas home. This was a friend who had allowed him to stay there before. He said ostensibly, like when he was on road trips, he needed to hang out there. But really the friend was like, I think he just brought his mistresses there. Okay. But that's what the friend thought was going on when he asked to stay there. What really Andy wanted, though, was that he knew that this friend kept a 25 automatic in his desk drawer. So he said, I'm staying at your house. And he actually took the gun. He later returned it. So the guy had no idea that his gun was used in the commission of a murder. Oh, my God. Because he was not home at the time. So he takes the gun. Next, he ended up stealing license plates from a car parked at a nearby mall and replacing his own plates. He then went to a grocery store where he bought surgical gloves and several lengths of cotton rope. And the last stop before Roseanne's was a florist where he purchased a potted mum and he pretended to be a florist delivery guy, saying that the potted mum was a present. So she opened the door to let him in. She was wearing a bathrobe. And only when he was inside and the doors closed behind him did he reveal that he had a gun and he was wearing surgical gloves. So in horror, Roseanne let him push her back towards her bedroom and she stopped to close her son's bedroom door where he was napping. That's so heartbreaking. So sad. In her room, he had her take off her robe get completely nude and lie face down on the bed, which he then tied her up. And he shoved her mouth full of tissues to gag her, um, tissues that had been in the bedroom on the bedside table, I believe. He said that she only said one thing before he gagged her. She said, why? Which he said he didn't answer. He said that he masturbated over her, I'm guessing into the glove or in somewhere because they didn't find semen. And there was another report I read, not in Carlton Stewart's book, that said he might have 
tried to rape her and he couldn't perform. So then he masturbated. In any case, he masturbated. And he said that he then took like a, it wasn't the robe belt, but it was like another, it was like a belt from one of her dresses, a cloth belt. And then he started strangling her. And when he started strangling her is when she started fighting for her life, but she's tied up and she managed to get one hand free and was actually putting up an amazing fight and he was getting freaked out. So at that point, because she was getting herself free and there was a chance that she was going to survive, he took a pillow as a muffler and he shot her twice in the back of the head before she could get her other hand free. And obviously very, very ill from being shot in the head and strangled, she ended up vomiting on the side of the bed, which is where they found it. At that point, he said that he did know that there was a child in the house, but he did not ever see little Peter. After shooting her, he immediately ran out and left the home. And he ended up getting rid of all of the evidence, I think in various dumpsters, and then he returned the gun. He described the act of killing and the feeling of getting away with it as euphoric. Oh my God, sick. Which I do not think he is going to feel so euphoric when the state of Texas puts that needle in his arm because they go in for the death penalty. Oh yeah. I mean, they still, death penalty is still legal in Texas, right? I believe so, yes. I mean, I think it's still technically legal everywhere, just some states choose not to do it. Okay. I think federally it's still legal. Don't quote me on this. So... In Texas, though, I'm pretty sure they're they're still doing it. So Andy is headed to a trial with lethal injection on the line. And little Miss Mastermind Joy is still like out there living her best life. She's lunching. She's having a great time. She still gets to live at home with her kid. In May of 1989, while she was still living with Jody Packer, the new boyfriend, the plumber guy. Joy began interviewing defense attorneys. She already had one defense attorney, but she wasn't totally convinced on him. So she had met a girlfriend of hers who had some, I believe, tax evasion issues and said, you should get hooked up with my attorney because he's great. And so she ended up having this meeting with this attorney named Mike Wilson and his law partner. Wait, wait, wait. Let me guess. Let me guess. Do they fall in love and get married? They, they don't end up getting married, but they do fall in love. Mike was a previously well-respected attorney who had started dabbling in cocaine and as a result lost his wife and three kids. And he was pretty well-regarded in the legal community still, but it was kind of an open secret that his professionalism was slipping. He had come to court a couple times pretty bedraggled from all-night cocaine vendors. And so Mike and his law partner met with Joy and his partner said after their meeting, that's the coldest damn woman I've ever seen. Mike, however, felt very differently. He was fascinated by Joy. He thought that she was stunningly beautiful. And he didn't end up getting hired by Joy, but he did end up assuming a different position in her life, that of her new boyfriend and maelstress. Because she's still living with her boyfriend, too, at this time. And Mike was recently remarried. He had been married for a year when he met Joy. Wow. Yeah. So this was a very exciting relationship for the two of them. Joy said that she felt seen and appreciated for the first time. And I think Mike was just completely drawn to her. 
And then tragedy struck. Now, this is the part I was sitting on the couch and I started crying. And Athena was like, what's going on? And I was like, I'm crying about the child of a murderer. Very, very tragically, Joy and Larry's son, who is now an older teenager, I believe he was 17 or 18-ish, died in a car accident. No. Carlton Storrs did a great job of describing this moment that I think came from Mike Wilson talking about it, that Chris had been sick and he wasn't supposed to go out. And she had believed he was still home when she got a call from the police or the hospital that she needed to come down to the hospital immediately because he was very, very badly injured in a car accident. And she tried to wake up Jody to go with her to the hospital and he refused. He went back to sleep. So she called Mike and Mike did go with her to the hospital. And there was um, some differing reports on what happened in Carlton Stewart's book. It said that he was drag racing. He wasn't actually the driver. It was his Porsche or his mother's Porsche, but he was in the passenger seat. Both children ended up getting killed. Oh my God. Yes. And, but I also read another report that said that there was no drugs or alcohol found in these kids' bodies. I read another report that said actually the reason why he was out in the middle of the night, even though he was sick, and the reason his friend was driving his car was because he wasn't feeling well, was because one of their other friends was threatening to commit suicide. So they were trying to get to their other friend to stop him from hurting himself. That's something else I read. So I'm not sure entirely what happened, but unfortunately, both of these young men lost their lives. And it is so heartbreaking hearing the account that Mike witnessed, which was her holding her son's hand as he's dying and he's completely unconscious. And she said something like, well, son, you got yourself into a fix that mama can't help or something. And and just this like sadness to her and like how she was and how she was crying over him and how he finally like left the room because it was so private. And he basically witnessed her at the worst day of her life. And that ended up bonding them because he was there for her emotionally throughout that experience. And he said that she had always been so composed, so steel-willed, so together. And to see her vulnerable and giving her son that love in his last moments made him fall even deeper in love with her. So Mike left his wife. Joy kicked Jody out, which was a complicated situation. It sounded more like a divorce settlement. He got like access to her family's vacation home. He had some sort of money coming his way, which sounded like it was payoff because he knew some incriminating things against Joy that he could testify about. So it sounds like he was kind of getting paid off. And he was not happy about all of this, by the way. This was a very contentious breakup. Jody did not want to let Joy go. He hated Mike. There was situations where the men got into fistfights, I believe. It was a whole thing. As Mike's relationship with Joy progressed, so did his cocaine use. Later, it would be suggested, I think it was suggested in the Snapped, that Joy enabled Mike's drug use, even driving him to his dealer's house, helping him procure the drugs, maybe giving him money for these drugs. They say that, that she was doing this to make him more malleable and easily manipulated. Mike eventually got himself into a huge amount of debt and trouble because of all of the cocaine. And he ended up working out this convoluted and illegal deal with one of his clients who was an actual coke dealer to be paid partly in cash and partly in cocaine. 
And unfortunately for Mike, this client was an informant for the DEA. Yeah. So they were monitoring this handover of this cocaine. He was supposed to go to a hotel room and get it. They caught him red-handed with what I think was a full suitcase, like carry-on suitcase of bricks of cocaine. See, he got arrested naturally. And Joy, at the same time, had been selling off her jewelry, moving money around, making it liquid. So the FBI already was watching her, thinking that she might make a move, because when people who are facing life in prison or even the death penalty start moving money around and taking it out, it seems like she might be making a run for it. So Mike is out on bail for his drug charges, and they decide to run away together. She wants to go to Mexico. He said it's too obvious. We live in Texas. They're going to find us in Mexico. Let's go to Canada. They end up roping in her cousin who drives them as far as Colorado. And then they did ultimately get into Canada. And the book makes this very thrilling. You're reading and you're like, am I rooting for them to get to Canada? Am I? Of course I'm not rooting for them. I need the police to catch them. But it's like exciting talking about what they're doing and where they get a car and where they decide to cross the border and how he got pulled over for speeding and they thought it was over, but it wasn't. And it's very this heady feeling of them. Finally, they cross the border. They get into a little, I think they went first to Vancouver, thinking that it was easier to hide in the city than they hid out somewhere else. And the cracks begin to form in this relationship because she had left a certain amount of money at her mom. So she had left like $200,000 in cash that she was supposed to bring with her at her parents' house. Uh, how do you forget that? I do not know. She had like an additional two hundred and fifty, I think, already on her. So she already has that money, but she wanted to have a half million. And so she gets really upset and she's like, I'm going to call Lonnie and get him to go to my mom's house and then bring us the cash. And he's like, who the hell is Lonnie? And it turns out it was this other married art dealer guy who was obsessed with her. He was just in love with her. And he's like, OK, so they're fugitives from the law. One's a murderer and the other one's involved in this coke deal. And now they're arguing about who Lonnie is and why he's involved in their life and what's going on. But the bottom line, Mike said, was it is a miracle that we got all the way to Canada without getting caught. They are going to be monitoring your parents' house like nobody's business. You cannot have anyone go. And also, your cousin is probably already in big trouble for this. Stop involving people in your murder plots. And the cousin was in trouble. In fact, they had discovered what he had done. So he was being hauled off to prison where he spilled everything and everything he knew about their plans. So I think Lonnie tipped them off at this point that the police were going to come for them in Canada, where they were last known to be. And so at that point, Joy says, I'm out of here. She had a passport that said Joy Taylor <laughs> instead of Ayler. And they like spilled coffee on it. So I don't know how this convoluted thing about this passport, but she says, I'm flying from Canada to Mexico. I'm going to Mexico. I wanted to go this whole time and you wouldn't let me go to Mexico. I'm getting the hell out of here and we need to book tickets now. And he's like, I'm going to tap out. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. Wow. Yeah. He's like, if you make it, call you me. You wanted to be up in the snow. <laughs> she just tapped her nose. That's funny. <laughs> exactly. So she gets in. She got into Mexico. She got on the flight. No problem. Made her way to Mexico. And eventually Mike was apprehended in Canada. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. Once he was apprehended, he was like, I'll tell you guys everything. 
I'll help you catch her, whatever you want. Apparently, Canada was not good for that couple. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what can I do to get this woman I was once in love with arrested immediately? He told them a lot of stuff. He said that he had realized that this woman that he thought was so loving and sensitive and kind who could never have done this because she was telling him originally that she actually didn't have anything to do with it. But throughout their conversations in Canada, it was made clear to him that she had actually set this up and that she hated her and she didn't feel bad about it at all. He said that she said, quote, she deserved what she got. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So there's, this makes more sense why Mike was like, no, thanks. Well, she also said that she would do it again. Yeah. So she has no remorse, obviously. She has absolutely no remorse. Well, the authorities did everything in their power to bring Joy to justice. They knew she was in Mexico, but they did not know where. So they actually went on America's Most Wanted. She got a big chunk of the episode devoted to her saying last known whereabouts are in Mexico. Please let us know if you've seen this woman. Turns out she'd actually already moved on with the help of Jody Packer, the ex-boyfriend, she got herself to France. I knew you were going to say that. How did you know that? I don't know. Yeah, so she managed to get to the south of France. And when Jody Packer's credit card was used at a car rental agency in Nice, the French police were able to start following leads to locate Joy. Apparently, Joy had gone into a car accident with that rental car, and the police were able to lift her prints from the car, so they knew they were on the right track. Obviously, there was, I think, an address filed with the car rental agency, so they managed to hunt her down in this tiny mountain village in the south of France, where she'd been living as Elizabeth Sharp, and Jody had been playing the part of her husband, Don Sharp. Is he with her? So he was, but apparently, I don't know how, he was either moving money around or he was involved in some sketchy deals, but he was out of the country, I think in Switzerland at the time of her arrest. Well, so close. Yeah. So he was out of the country at this time. And this detective, De Clote, managed to hunt her down, find her. And when she was arrested, he said to his fellow officers, she has the face of an angel. Stop it. Yes. And apparently he was looking too closely at her face and not at what she was doing because after they put her into custody in a French jail, she pulled a razor blade out of her sock and tried to kill herself. (gasps) Yes. Luckily, she was found pretty shortly after the attempt on her life. But it was bad, guys. It was very deep. She had severed several tendons in both wrists. Ooh, Jesse. Yeah. Uh. This was a very, very serious attempt. So Joy gained international attention as the Devil Woman of Dallas. Well, the French and the U.S. kind of argued about her extradition process because there's a longstanding treaty between the U.S. and France and where France said you can't kill somebody. If we extradite to you, you cannot death penalty them. Okay. So eventually they did extradite her and the death penalty is off the table. But life in jail is not. But life in prison without the possibility of parole is not. So Andy Hopper was not so lucky. After a lengthy trial in early 1992, he was convicted of the murder of Roseanne Galunas and sentenced to death by lethal injection. In August of 1994, Joy's trial began. 
The star witnesses for the prosecution were her sister and her two former lovers, Mike Wilson and Jody Packer. Jody had been caught when he was trying to sneak back into Texas from Mexico. So blood and love had betrayed Joy in the end. For Mike, there was certainly no lingering feelings. He had been sentenced to 15 years in prison, but he had appealed and won a shorter sentence. So he ended up serving, I think, four years. He had since cleaned up his act. He had gone back into the law. He had remarried and even welcomed a baby. Okay. By the time her trial happened. So this guy moves fast. Jody had broken a ton of laws involving the money he had smuggled and moved around in various countries. And, of course, he had aided and abetted a fugitive. So he was in big trouble and he wanted desperately to trade his testimony for a shorter sentence, which is what he did. And her attorneys really tried to not have him testify because he had all the goods on her. They tried to say that they were a common law husband and wife, and therefore he could not testify against her. Got it. Got it. Did that and work? No. He got up on the stand and he's like, I've never filed taxes with this woman. I've never considered this woman my wife in any capacity. Absolutely not. And so that was thrown out. So his testimony did make it in. And it was actually kind of funny. So I'm going to read part of his testimony from Open Secrets. So part of it's damning. I mean, he starts with, like, the goods, the, the real stuff. He said that she told me she wanted Roseanne Galunas eliminated out of the picture, he told the jury. If Roseanne was gone, Larry would have to move back home and put the money back in the accounts. Joy, he said, had shown no remorse as she detailed for him her role in Roseanne's death on the night of her initial arrest in 1988. On several occasions, he said, he had tried to persuade Joy to consider the plea bargain her attorney was attempting to arrange, but she had refused. She said there was no way she would ever go to jail, he recalled. She mentioned all the money she had and said that she could live like a queen for the rest of her life. During his day-long testimony, Packer outlined his involvement in helping her gather money for her flight, then described how he and Joy had reunited once she had left Mike Wilson in Canada and traveled to Mexico. He told of helping her secure a false passport that would provide her with a new identity and allow her to travel in Europe in the search of a new hiding place. And for the first time, longtime followers of the case learned what had happened to much of the money that had for so long been unaccounted for. Under cross-examination, Packer admitted withdrawing $200,000 belonging to Ayler from banks in Zurich, Switzerland, and Mexico City after her capture in the south of France. He had used the money while on the run following his own arrest. Packer described his high-living lifestyle following Joy's capture, living for a time in Mexico, where he competed in amateur tennis tournaments. Then purchasing a sailboat on which he traveled up the East Coast before selling it in Maryland. Later on, he also returned to Mexico where he bought a car and embarked on a lengthy road trip across the U.S. West Coast. It's nice he got to like enjoy some me time, you know, before. He really did. An estimated hundred grand. So he blew a hundred grand. An estimated hundred grand remained in the bank in Mexico City, he said, and he admitted he had no plans to return it to Joy. Quite frankly, he said, I think the money should be used to pay my legal fees since every problem I have ever had is a result of trying to help Joy Ayler. Oh, my God. Dude, really? Really? Oh, my goodness. I think you had some hand in these poor decision makings, my friend. Well, I do not think he got to keep the money because Joy was pretty much sued into financial oblivion in civil trials as well by Larry and Roseanne's family. 
According to Carlton Stowers, the uncontested judgment against her, the amount that she is supposed to pay Roseanne's family and her ex-husband, who she tried to murder, was $486.2 million. Whoa. Half a bill. That is a bill, but it is unfortunately unlikely that the family will see any of that because in August of 1994, Joy was convicted of Roseanne's murder for hire and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Stop it right now. No LWAP. Bill Garland, Joe Thomas, Brian Creefel, Buster and Gary Matthews, Jody Packer, and Joy's cousin Brad were all charged with crimes related to Joy, and I believe all of them are either out or deceased at this point. Bill Garland's the only one who may still be in prison because he got 30 years. I'm not entirely sure. But the person who got it the worst was the actual murderer, Andy Hopper. Which makes sense. Thoughts about the death penalty aside, I don't know if he deserved to die, but he definitely deserved a harsh punishment for what he did to Roseanne. The worst, yes. Andy was executed by lethal injection on March 8th, 2005. And if you're going to ask me if I know what his last meal was. Do you know what his last meal was? I do. Thanks to Dead Man Eating web blog. Wait. Yes, there's a whole blog about executed people's last meals, which I am so happy I found. So Dead Man Eating web blog, guys. Andy was one sick son of a bitch and a terrible human being. But I have to say, he had good taste in last meals. He had six eggs over easy, 10 biscuits. Wait, 10 biscuits? This is a meal to end all meals. 12 pieces of bacon, a bowl of grits, a bowl of thick white gravy, strawberry preserves, fried chicken, french fries, and a chocolate meringue pie. Wow. I mean, that is the most impressive last meal I think I've ever heard. That is, for sure, the most impressive I've heard. It certainly beats the heck out of, uh, you guys should sign up for the Patreon. One of our recent bonus episodes was on Carla Faye Tucker, the pickaxe murderess, and she had a garden salad and a peach. Yeah. Yeah, that was bullshit last meal. To Andy's credit, he did express deep remorse in his last words. I mean, at least he tried. I mean, he went to school to be a minister. I know. He turned to Roseanne's family, including her now adult son, Peter, who had been both robbed of a life with his mother and has to endure the forever trauma of discovering her body. And what Andy said to him was, I have made a lot of mistakes in my life. The things I did changed so many lives. I can't take it back. It was an atrocity. I'm so sorry. I beg your forgiveness. I know, though, that I'm not worthy of it. Hmm. Then he turned to his parents, which were in the separate viewing room, and told them he loved them. And he thanked them for everything. He recited a brief prayer with his mother, and then he was injected with the lethal drugs. Eight minutes later, he was pronounced dead. He was 49 years old. What about his own family? I don't know if they were there. I don't know what relationship his daughters had with him following the arrest. If they weren't there, then obviously. Yeah. It said that his family was there and specifically mentioned his parents, but I don't know if that included his daughters. 
Joy was denied parole in 2011 and 2017. She is reportedly eligible again this year for 2022. But from what I saw, she is still listed as a prisoner at the Mountain View Prison in Texas. She is 73 years old. Whoa. So I don't know. She could be getting out soon. Wikipedia fun fact. Wikipedia fun fact. Sybil Shepard played Joy Ayler in a 1993 TV movie called Telling Secrets, which was based on Detective Morris McGowan's account. And I think Carlton Storrs might have had something to do with it as well. People Magazine gave it a B minus, but LA Times savaged it in their review, saying even if all of these events were true, the movie fails to distill the messy plot strands into something propulsive. A flatness permeates the production. Oh my God, amazing. (laughs) I smell a watch party. (laughs) I think it's hard to find. I read that it's notoriously hard to find. I don't think it's streaming anywhere, but we'll check it out for you guys. We'll look for it. In conclusion, sometimes it's not actually the husband. And to go off of that, too, I mean, you can't let a pretty face trick you, you know? Oh, yeah. A lot of people tricked by that angel face. Angelic. Angelic face. Yeah, you cannot judge a book on its cover, my friends. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Love you guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye.